What followed was reported in a palace press release that was picked up by newspapers in Prussia, Saxony, and other German territories. One hears from Potsdam that last Sunday the famous Kapellmeister from Leipzig, Erbach, arrived at the castle. His august self, Frederick, went at Bach's entrance to the so-called Forte e Pieno, condescending also to play in his most august person without any preparation a theme for the Kapellmeister Bach, which he should execute in a fugue. This was done so happily by the aforementioned Kapellmeister that not only His Majesty was pleased to show his satisfaction thereat, but also all those present were seized with astonishment. Herr Bach found the theme propounded to him so exceedingly beautiful that he intends to set it down on paper as a regular fugue and have it engraved on copper. So there's this book by James R. Gaines uh, entitled Evening in the Palace of Reason um, when Bach meets Frederick the Great in the Age of Enlightenment. And looking at the book, if this is published by um, Fourth Estate, a HarperCollins book, and it came out in 2005. Um, welcome to BachCast. This is episode number two. And I'm your host, John Hendren. And our featured piece for this episode is the Trio Sonata from Bach's musical offering, BWV 1079. Um, this whole work, I should explain a little bit about it, and then we'll get right into the Trio Sonata, but... Um, this work was something Bach put together um, and paid to have it published uh, in light of going to visit Frederick the Great uh, in 1740s. Uh, Frederick the Great, known as a flute-playing uh, royal, I guess, who liked music and had in his employ uh, Bach's son, Carl Philip Emanuel, and also known to have, uh, as I did the excerpt there from the press release, uh, owned at least one Silberman Forte piano, uh, the newest keyboard instrument. And supposedly, as the story goes, upon hearing that Bach came to visit gave him this theme to then use in uh, a fugue that Bach was to actually just sit down and perform. And you got to know that Bach had some fame in his time, first as an organist, and second as a contrapuntalist. Um, probably not so much as a composer, but the fact that his son worked for Frederick the Great and Frederick the Great was interested in music. Um, probably there was some renown that you know Dad could 
could take any theme and, and put it to work. There's been some speculation about, and this is discussed in the book, about where the theme comes from. Uh, some commentators say that it was so well put together as to be impossible to use. Uh, that actually came from Arnold Schoenberg uh, from the early 20th century. Um, and so the speculation is that, that perhaps Carl Philip Emanuel himself helped Frederick the Great create this, this puzzle for Dad. And so Bach's musical offering, if you look it up, is, is more than just a trio sonata. It's a set of uh, canons, and at the centerpiece are these two ricercares, uh, two fugues, set upon this theme that Frederick the Great hands Bach. And what Bach ends up doing is presenting to him after the visit uh, kind of all the solutions to the riddles. Uh, and if, as you might expect, Bach was up to the challenge. And his six-part reacher car from the collection is is considered a, kind of a monumental work. It's a six-part fugue. And what makes it all the more difficult is that theme that we just heard, which is chromatic, right? So it's kind of set in C minor. But then when it comes down, da, 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 boom, it, it goes from there. It uses lots of uh, you know, chromatic notes. Um, for those of you not that familiar with music, it's basically using a lot of the black keys on the keyboard to kind of fill in, um, which just makes for a difficult thing to put all that together. So what Bach does is, is give him this collection of things, and they're not all worked out. He kind of does a tongue-in-cheek thing and says, hey, you, you figure some of these out. I've already put them together. And, and that may be a topic for another podcast. What I want to get to is this trio sonata. Now, a trio sonata in Baroque terms is a, is a chamber work written for three voices, hence the name trio. And in Bach's case, he puts together a, a pretty stark, standard uh, format. He uses a slow, fast, slow, fast uh, orientation of movements. And I always like to compare Bach's writing at this time, late late Baroque, late Bach, with his contemporaries, such as Telemann, who wrote lots of trio sonatas and typically always wrote them in a slow, fast, slow, fast orientation. Um, that's kind of important because why would Bach write a trio sonata? Um, if you follow the story, Bach was asked to write this keyboard piece or to create one. But knowing that Frederick the Great liked chamber music, knowing that he liked music of a different style than Bach was typically known for, uh, because it was less about counterpoint for the galant style that was emerging as the, the popular form, um, this is, where's Bach getting this language? Probably from his son, Carl Philip Emanuel. And knowing that the art of counterpoint was kind of arcane, Bach is taking some time to say, uh, I can do this. Um, I'm not sure what he thought about the style. We, he did not write about it. Uh, but we do know, however, that this, this got to the, the king, and I'm not sure we know what happened after that. But he leaves in this legacy, he left the world this legacy, a great masterwork, the musical offering. And 
The Trito Sonata has got to be viewed as kind of a special treat for the king. This is the most forward-looking thing that Bach has written, probably in, in everything he's done. And he's probably doing it to get the attention of the king. He's written a flute part and a violin part. And knowing that the, the king is, the, is a flute player, that's probably not insignificant. So let's look at this work. Four movements. Slow, fast, slow, fast. And what's important here, I think, stylistically, is looking at the style of the slow movements, especially. Um, I'll tell you that Bach can't divorce himself of the counterpoint, which is really at play in the second and fourth movements. But the slower movements are those ones to, to kind of give up that, the arcane style that Bach was used to writing in, that was, he was, where he was comfortable, where he was the expert. And he tries to lighten things up a bit. And let's listen to a little bit of that. So kind of an, a nice uh, sound. Um, Gallant music really was focused more on melody than uh, counterpoint as a, a defining feature. And it's kind of that little bit of period that overlaps, that takes us from Baroque music into classical music. It's that, that kind of filler between the, the two periods. And Bach really makes an attempt here to give us that feel. Now he's chosen instruments again based on what would be common, would be available. And this recording kind of does some interesting things because it, it gives us access to some sound and some color that we might not be used to in Bach. In fact, of, of some of the different recordings that I have available, um, the sound is actually a little unique because of the instruments that are used. This is a recording that appears on Hansler Classics. This is um, a collaboration from a number of uh, German players. They don't give themselves a, a name in this in this recording, which is a little unusual. It's, it's all kind of soloist. But you'll probably recognize some of these names, such as Carl Kaiser on flute, uh, Gottfried and uh, Kristen Vandergoltz. Uh, associated with the Freiburg uh, Baroque Orchestra. We have Michael Beringer, uh, a keyboard player, um, and we have some other contributors to that. So this is a recording of uh, the whole musical offering, but in the trio sonata they used the forte piano instead of the harpsichord. And you actually get a mixture in this recording. The, the three-part Richakar is also what you heard at the beginning uh, earlier. For the, with, to have the theme was also done on the piano and then um, the sixth part is actually done harpsichord and some recordings you'll actually hear them use more of a standard basso continuo configuration where you've got the harpsichord playing the bass line and then 
filling some things in. But you may also, uh, of course, it, it's written with two hands. You also get the, the bass line punctuated by uh, a string instrument like a cello. And in this case, they decide not to do that and just let the piano kind of be on its own and have a real true three-part texture, which I think is kind of interesting. It, it lightens the piece a little bit um, in terms of the sound, which I really like. It's one of the reasons I chose this recording to highlight because I think it, it, uh, it, it fits the history behind the piece. And it really, that lightening of the texture gives it more of that gallant feel. So we know a couple things about this work. Um, it was put together by Bach came about from a meeting when he went to visit the ruler Frederick the Great. And Frederick the Great's father, as this book I mentioned earlier will tell you, was not a fan of French things. But the the flavor of this trio sonata, especially this first one, has a very French flavor. And of course, the, the transverse flute, the flute that you play across the body as opposed to the recorder, um, was Frederick's instrument, which growing up he had to basically hide from his father. The book goes into some detail about how it was kept a secret and that both Frederick and his sister would play with his with their mother. Um, but the flute playing was kind of on the down low. Not, not until his dad was out of the picture could he really come out as a flute player, which is just kind of uh, interesting. So the second movement is my favorite because Bach uses this movement, the, a fast movement, to play with the royal theme. Now this royal theme plays itself throughout the different parts of the musical offering. And it's in this part that it's, it's laid bare for us to hear in this trio sonata format. And what, I, what I'm going to, the excerpt I'm going to play for you is you're going to hear it at the beginning, uh, played by the violin. And what happens is this theme gets tossed around because in a fugue, you have a theme that will appear in the different voices. Um, for instance, in box preludes and fugues for the keyboard, the, the well-tempered clavier, you have a prelude and then you have a fugue prelude and fugue and in the fugues you'll see usually see a three or a four in three voices or in four voices and so in this one he's playing with three voices because he has three different instruments and at the end of the piece he finally goes over to the flute as if to say here you go king i'll let you play your theme so it's kind of cool so now that i've played it for you once you're going to be listening for it here within the texture and again, it first appears in the violin, then it gets passed to the keyboard, and then finally it gets passed to the flute. so far is the theme that starts in the violin and then gets passed to the flute. That's kind of a standard fugue. 
And while it's a very interesting kind of complex theme, we've, we've kind of thrown out that whole gallant idea for a while. Um, we haven't heard the, the, the royal theme yet, but it's coming up. just appeared in the left hand of the keyboard part. Boom, 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 boom. So beyond being kind of an interesting piece of music, I think they're doing a really good job at the at the playing. Um, the violin playing is really strong, and the flute, while it may sound a little in the background, there there are some recordings where the flute is definitely more prominent in the mix. It's probably a realistic representation of the sound of the instruments. And so, again, I think that's the gem of this piece of music is this movement where that that royal theme is kind of tucked in there and it's passed between voices. I think I might have said earlier it first appeared in the violin, but um, the royal theme itself is is first appears in the um, keyboard part. Um, and I don't know if that has meaning or not. We might imagine that uh, Bach's son is playing the keyboard part, and if we believe that Bach's son had something to do with creating the theme, it, it may be tongue-in-cheek tongue that, well, I'll give it to you first, but... Um, who knows? I mean, it had to start somewhere first, right? So the rest of the, the piece is two movements, a slow movement and a fast movement. Let's just give a little listen to the flavor there uh, between those two. This piece reminds me a lot of the, uh, the second movement of the first Brandenburg Concerto, which we explored in the first podcast. Um, it's, it's the little excerpt that I included at, at the introduction, where we have this sighing figure. And this is just all full of, this is full of probably the most uh, emotionally kind of direct music that we're ever going to get out of Bach um, in terms of just over and over again, this feeling. Um, it just has kind of a, a modern feel to it. If you 
if you've listened to Baroque music and you listen to classical music and you kind of get the feeling, um, it's very uncharacteristic of Bach's style, more characteristic of, of his son and, and the music that he composed. And so it's a nice little pause before we get into the, f the final jaunty uh, fast movement. And the theme is not there directly quoted, but I think if you hear the theme of that last movement, you'll see how it's um, somehow connected to the royal theme. You can definitely hear the chromatic influence in that writing. And again, Bach has gone back to being a contrapuntalist. It's what trios and the trio sonata format, he, he could not escape that. That's that's the way it's written. Uh, theme, same themes being passed back and forth between two melody instruments. And of course, he's, he's not um, divorcing himself of, of being able to pass themes to the to the keyboard as well to have a, a true three-part texture. So this piece is kind of interesting because Bach did not leave us a lot of trio sonatas. He's uh, probably most famous for leaving us six as in the form of organ pieces. And performers today will, will kind of arrange those and take those apart and make a texture similar to this. Um, but this stands out as one of the best crafted ones and it's kind of cool when you know the story behind it that that Bach is being challenged to think forward he's trying to present a a gift to somebody he's trying to match the style that this person likes but at the same time the thing that has made all this possible is his ability to uh kind of be a, an expert or a genius in the old style of writing that's that's really focused on counterpoint and being able to take different um, themes and lock them together uh, between the voices and essentially essentially Bach's whole way of writing music is is being put to the test and so this 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 piece is is kind of Bach's way of saying okay uh I'll meet you and I'll show you that I, I'm as skilled as you may think I've or heard I was, but at the same time it's his um, kind of compromise in a way of, of kind of looking forward as much as Bach could uh, near the end of his compositional life. So I hope you found both this recording, which um, I have another recording I really like of the musical offering too that we may explore later, but this one especially I think did a really good job. Um, the performers again 
made a decision about what keyboard instrument to use. They looked at some of the evidence uh, behind the generation of this work and decided to substitute um, probably the standard choice of being harpsichord and a bass instrument like a cello and instead substituting the new avant-garde keyboard instrument, the pianoforte. And the rest is kind of history. Uh, it's a really solid trio sonata with an interesting story, with a very curious theme, and box solutions. If you, uh, if you ever want to kind of study it, uh, I'll, I'll try to link to some information you might find online that's accessible um, about how Bach has interwoven this royal theme. And hopefully it turns you on to the rest of the musical offering. The other pieces are probably not as easy to get into, but if you're if you're interested in kind of the, the the puzzle pieces that fit together to make work like this happen, it definitely is something that's uh, worth your study and worth some some serious listening. But that is the end of episode two. I want to thank you for listening. My name is John Hendren. <laughs>